Hi, and welcome to the Southern Soil Podcast. I'm your host, Leanna Tatum, and I'm passionate about local sustainable food production and the ways we can shift our food systems here in the U.S. to healthier, more humane, and environmentally friendly methods of farming. Join me for weekly conversations and stories around building local food communities from soil to table and all points in between. Pull up a chair and let's get started. Thanks for joining me today as I talk with Grant Anderson, the founder of Better Fresh Farms, which is operating out of the Georgia Grown Innovation Center in Metter. Grant has a heart for growing clean foods and feeding his community. He uses a high-tech approach to make fresh food available 365 days a year. When I first met Grant about four years ago, he was operating with two converted shipping containers fitted for hydroponically growing produce in a carefully controlled environment. His high-tech farm has since grown. Through an arduous process of trial and error, Grant is forging a path and pioneering a form of clean, sustainable farming that could prove to be an important part of any successful local food system. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Morning Bell Farms is a family-owned and operated U-Pick Blueberry Farm, which is USDA organic certified. Located in Woodbine in South Georgia, the farm is open Thursdays and Saturdays from 9 to 5 and Sundays from 1 to 5 during the blueberry season, which is going on now through early July. Be sure to like and follow them on Facebook and Instagram to stay up to date on all the happenings. So think outside the city limits, take your family at the farm, enjoy the thrill of the hunt, a picture-perfect setting, and simple pleasures long forgotten. Oh, and be sure to get some fresh-squeezed blueberry lemonade while you're there. So you and I first met back in 2018, I think, mm-hmm. and we were both just kind of getting started. Very much and, so. Uh, yeah, that was kind of a fun conversation. And that that idea really that I had wanted to do with with that series of Table Talk articles and have these kind of conversations never really translated well for the articles, but when I... But it's one of the primary reasons I wanted to do the podcast because I think there's just so many interesting conversations around local food and around local food systems. And um, so it's been fun for me and I've gotten a lot of great feedback that people have enjoyed, you know, listening to them and just kind of having those conversations about local food because there's so many aspects to it, you know, and it affects everything from, you know, I mean, it relates to politics and er you know, everything, infrastructure, and just so many of those Way more so than I realized when we spoke in 2018. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was still figuring that out. Yeah. So we, yeah, so we started when, we were talking when you first got started, you had one container, right? Or did you have two? I had two, but had we were two, running one we at the time. One, yeah. So a lot has changed. Very much so. <laughs> Thankfully. Yeah, and and you've grown, and it's it's been fun for me, especially like with with those earlier conversations when I run back into people and see the growth and be able to kind of um, have sort of that front row seat on it. It's been kind of fun, and and when I go to restaurants, a lot of times, or um, I was up at Low Country Fresh Market. They have your stuff. Like, I'll, I see your stuff everywhere. They'll be like, oh, yeah, Grant. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know Grant. He's so nice. We're like, yeah, he's so nice. So I just want you to know that you have a great reputation out there. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, they still get to deal with me directly. So yeah. it's one, you know, I guess a drawback to local farming is that you, you still have to directly be involved in a lot of ways. I feel like if you're going to be successful as a small yeah. producer, but, um, you know, they, they deal directly with the source yeah so i feel like we've got a better handle on keeping them happy yeah know, or at least being able to read and react so yeah i appreciate well, you saying that yeah you definitely get a lot of good feedback so just just to let you know because i you. always i always check in on my people <laughs> you know, i always want to know how everybody's doing but um uh, yeah so i know um a lot of growth and we're here at the um center for what's the name georgia grown innovation center and okay thank you yes and that's kind of been a, an incubation point. And I know you were you were pretty much the first mm-hmm. business here, right? It's been an interesting journey. Yeah. And it happened quickly. We uh, When you first met me, I was in the old hayfield behind my grandma's. Right, right. Uh, we graduated from that site to the site of a family, uh, the Goros family in Guyton, Georgia. Okay. Um, Tim and Sherry became aware of what I was working on. They had some farm property they weren't really using, I guess, to the fullest mm-hmm. uh, and offered to help me continue to run my business or at least help cover expenses while right. I was trying to get established. Right. So 
Uh, I moved our original two containers there and operated for just over a year. Oddly enough, within six months or so of moving our property, our equipment there to their property, uh, I got a call from Heidi Jeffers with the city of mm -hmm. Metter saying, we've done this feasibility study with Georgia Southern. Georgia Grown is helping us rebrand our city as a foodie destination of sorts. Right. And we've embraced this idea of becoming the first Georgia Grown community, which is something Georgia Grown wanted to model to put in other rural communities around yeah. the state. Yeah, it's really a and, cool idea. Uh, they <clears throat> effectively were trying to find a business that could be marketable in that way. Mm -hmm. And Tom Neville, who was with Georgia Grown at the time, was my local marketing rep. Right. And so he pitched my name and said, there's a young guy in Effingham County doing something different. Yeah. And, you know, very much tech assisted. So if you wanted something that was kind of new age, right. maybe talk to him. And uh, so that was... Late 2018, I guess. October, I believe it was, when mm -hmm. I first spoke with Heidi. Um, and so it took probably six months going back and forth with the city, uh, meeting with city council, speaking to them about our right. plans for them to put together a grant package to go out and get funding to refurbish this former public works building we're in mm -hmm. to give us the capacity to move in. And so once we agreed to the lease with the city uh, and they got funding for the grant, they took us back with them to Georgia Southern and said, hey, we've got a farmer who's going to move his facility here. Right. It's, you know, this new age approach to agriculture, tech assisted. Yeah. Um, and we think we could do something there around sustainable ag innovation. And so Georgia Southern then committed to put effectively the innovation center here. Mm -hmm. So it's Georgia grown branded, but it's the resources of Georgia Southern University mm -hmm. in conjunction with the city that really made it attractive. So yeah. There's a number of businesses involved that aren't necessarily directly ag-related, mm -hmm. but can benefit from those relationships right. still. Because we're figuring out questions, you know, like logistics for small business. Right. So, right. you know, theoretically, you've got a big refrigerated truck that could haul it all over the country, but what do you do for a small market producer? Um, those are some of the questions that are being answered here. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's beneficial for us not having the resources to pay for that up front. Right. To be able to have those conversations and whether it's the... Small Business Development Center through University of Georgia System uh, or directly Georgia Southern, there's resources that seem, you know, we can tap at least for conversation. Yeah. Um, so it's been helpful to, I guess, dig into some of the market expansion ideas we've had. Right. Even though I don't have the staff for that, we get to right. have those conversations now. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. You just, and you sort of have almost like a business advisor panel sort of yeah, situation. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, if you're talking about engineering, they can steer you one direction. Mm. If you're talking about marketing or manufacturing, you can go another. Um, there's connections with Georgia Tech now with mm. their lean manufacturing group. Still hoping I can get my business to the point where we can get in touch with my alma mater and, uh, and explore some things. But to date, so far, you know, locally, Georgia Southern has been a big help. Right. Starting to, you know, approach some of those questions about scalability. Yeah. Very cool. Let's talk about when you first got started and kind of, um, you know, because I know your background is not in farming and you're not a traditional farmer doing what you're right. doing. So let's, let's kind of talk about a little bit about what your background was and, and why you decided that you wanted to grow food in the first place. Sure. Um, it's, a uh, it's one of those things that I felt like I was kind of getting tapped on the shoulder for a few years and didn't realize it uh, mm -hmm. until after the fact. But, um, I got my business management degree from Georgia tech. Mm -hmm. I really didn't know what I was going to do with that, but I ended up in banking. Um, I started off as a third party auditor and traveled around, effectively doing mock audits for community banks. Mm -hmm. um, and that was during the mortgage crisis at the end of the 2000s. Right. So uh, I ended up taking a job with a hometown bank in Effingham to try and be an in-house auditing person, you know, to help clean up the books and mm -hmm. hopefully save, save the bank in some capacity. And that didn't happen. The bank was purchased through an FDIC receivership agreement. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was effectively told there really was no long-term plan for me to stay with that bank. So yeah. uh, my wife and I moved up to Atlanta. Um, I had an inside sales support role. I was an analyst helping with the inside sales team, trying to find leads, trying to analyze data. Mm -hmm. And uh, just the rat race in Atlanta. At the same time, also, my son was born. So mm -hmm. our first child was born, uh, and I was gone, you know, 50, 60 hours a week doing this yeah. job. and it really ended up being something that 
while the salary was good, we didn't enjoy the lifestyle. So yeah. um, I took a job at the Effingham County Board of Education and moved home to be a payroll and benefits administrator with no real eye towards doing that long term, but uh, it was a quality position mm-hmm. and it was home. And so we felt like that was at least better for us at that time than Atlanta. Right, right. And all the while, once we had moved to Atlanta and all the way through even taking the job in Effingham, um, I just didn't feel like finance was my thing long term. Mm-hmm. I didn't enjoy being the numbers guy, so to speak. And yeah. I kind of kept getting pigeonholed into these finance positions and uh, I'd gotten burned out in a variety of ways yeah. on that. So yeah. uh, I had a notebook I was keeping notes in. My friend Nathan and I um, would talk over lunch at Equifax about, you know, what could we do? Do we build an app? Do we start a business? You know, what, mm-hmm. what could we do that's not this? Right. Um, but has potential, you know, yeah. and we, you know, yeah. instead of working so hard for a salary, what if we worked real hard for potential in something else? A business, right. And so for a couple of years there, I had kept this journal and never really found anything that inspired me to move forward. Uh, but while I was sitting at my desk for lunch one day at the Board of Education in Effingham, I read an article on CNN Money mm-hmm. uh, about a couple of retirees in the Boston area named the Coonies who had started a business out of container farming. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I read that day, no, they had no experience in farming whatsoever, mm-hmm. but had eight of these 40-foot containers producing greens year-round in downtown Boston. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I thought, one, I have an ag background. I grew up farming with my grandpa every summer. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just a half acre or so row crop behind the house, but I was used to fresh food. And it yeah. was something that I'd gotten away from. And then yeah. even while we were in Atlanta, we discussed how you really didn't know where the food we were feeding our yeah. newborn son came from. We were trying to make homemade baby food, and, you know, it was really challenging to know that it actually was quality mm-hmm. or who grew it and how. And all those things just kind of stuck in my mind over the years yeah um even throwback i was a cotton and soybean scout and a farmhand for thomas kessler in effingham uh, over the summers when i would come home from college Mm -hmm. and i just truthfully never saw a career in agriculture yeah um but i read the article that day and i started looking at the numbers and the idea that you could frame up a farm business where it was not seasonal you had 52 weeks of cash flow right really piqued my interest because, you know, whether you're talking about the long days when I was doing loan review and auditing or the fact that I grew up around farmers who it seemed to be a real challenge to have an expected yeah revenue income, source. You know, right. you didn't know where that was going right. to go year to year. Some were good, some weren't. Right. And, you know, I didn't want to hope on the bumper crop. That's part of why I would never have been a farmer. It's like, I don't yeah. want to just, you know, really hope that it's a good year. Yeah. And, uh, I just, it was never attractive to me, but the idea that you can measure farming and that you could control mm-hmm. it in some way, yeah, which is kind of a joke now looking back on it, you can't control it. You know, you can, you can influence it. Right. You have a lot of influence over the, right. the schedule, but in a lot of ways it was just, uh, sounded better than reality. Yeah. So, uh, it's not quite as, uh, input equals times this equals no. a, and a lot of people want to say, that you know, you can get, yeah. you've got the computers. Yeah. And so the expectation is you kind of, let the right. computer drive, but there's so many mechanical components in that chain that have to yeah. be working in concert for you to get a quality crop, and that has to be all the time if it's year-round. Yeah. Um, it was just oversold to us the ability to use hydroponics right. to grow commercial produce. So, uh, nonetheless, I drank the Kool-Aid. You know, mm-hmm. I was I was really intrigued by the idea. I flew up to Boston to see yeah. a manufacturer by the name of Freight Farms. Um, who had the first commercially available container farm system. Right. And they sold it as a turnkey hydroponic solution to build a business. Basically said you didn't have to have any experience in farming, period, much less Mm -hmm. hydroponics. They could kind of teach you. Um, And, you know, in our experience, it could have been further from the truth. There was a spreadsheet that told us our ideal yield. Yeah. And you could never reach that number. We weren't Mm -hmm. getting close to it. Using the instructions that they had given us to operate the equipment. So... Um, I spent the better part of a year and a half running that equipment, trying to optimize it. And it really didn't matter how much we sold out of it week over week. We never got close to the numbers we were told we would. So the idea that I had a small business that was turnkey proved out to be unrealistic, particularly because of the piece of equipment. It just was not, it was more designed to be a hobby farm, Mm -hmm. but it was sold as a commercial system. Gotcha. Um, and it really took going through that year and a half to prove out 
it really doesn't matter how many hours I devote to it. At this point, I've got contacts a year and a half in from Australia to British Columbia. Mm-hmm. I know people in London who are doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know people in the Caribbean who are doing this. Like right. I've found anybody and everybody right. who felt like I can who's trying yeah. to do this. And across the board, if they're using that freight farms, leafy green machine system, they're not productive either. They're having trouble being profitable. Now, it's not to say that there aren't markets where people haven't made it work. Mm -hmm. I've heard of people doing these little petite ounce and a half to two ounce heads of lettuce. Mm -hmm. You know, and that may be good in in the middle of a city where you can't grow anything fresh. Right. You don't have another option. But in South Georgia, in my experience, people could care less about a little itty bitty head of lettuce. Right. Of of artisan (laughs) lettuce, you know. People still want to get their dollars worth. Yeah. And so we were trying to grow a full-size marketable head of lettuce. Yeah. And instead of expanding and scaling up with that system we started with, we ended up trying to find a system that worked better than that. Mm-hmm. And over the next three years, we tested out a system that was built by a company called Modular Farms in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, they ended up going out of business. So we couldn't purchase those right. anymore, whether we wanted to or not. They weren't building them. Uh, Then we looked into a system out of Vancouver um, from a company by the name of Cubic Farms. Mm -hmm. And instead of a single container design you could purchase, this was a 16 container like site installation of sorts. It was was an all-in-one manufacturing facility with central processing. Um, But after conversation with them, same issue. We were trying to grow an average four-ounce head of lettuce. Mm -hmm. And when it got to that final week of development, their system couldn't maintain it so it was another system that could grow volume but not a marketable head of lettuce and so uh, the next one we found was a company by the name of urban crop solutions out of belgium Mm -hmm. and this was a incredibly well engineered supposedly system it was it had conveyor systems in it that would rotate the produce for you at command Mm -hmm. Uh, supposed to drastically reduce labor because unskilled labor in belgium was so expensive per hour they were trying to reduce how long it took right. for you to produce your produce. Uh, and it ended up being a mechanical nightmare for us, mm. uh, whether it was trying to source metric parts or mm. pumps yeah. that they were, you know, we yeah. just had issues. And so even though our other systems weren't productive, they were, we could run them continuously. Right. This was the first time we'd had a system where 52 weeks of production was not going to happen. We had shut mm. the farm down three times in 18 oh, months wow. to try and either troubleshoot a mechanical issue or evacuate a crop that was having problems and we ended up shutting that one down altogether so effectively our first four systems that we had explored were kind of swing and miss mm-hmm. and three and a half four years into it I'm looking at more of a science project than I mm-hmm. am a business yeah and it's all based on these technologies that we're being told by these companies hey this is Right, this a is sure it. thing. Yeah. And the unfortunate side of it is none of these companies would admit it either, but Freight Farms discontinued the LGM design. Mm-hmm. They would tell you till they were blue in the face it was productive, but they stopped building and selling it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Urban Crop Solutions over in Belgium, they would not concede that there were design issues that made that thing an issue to run. Mm-hmm. They discontinued it and started building something else and don't sell it right. anymore. And this is all in a matter of one to two years of them introducing technology. Wow. Yeah. So... You know, hydroponics in its simplest form is really reliable, but unfortunately some of the systems that we've tested out have just been over-engineered. People yeah. tried too hard to make something that could be managed simply complicated. Too complicated. And most recently, thankfully, we finally found a manufacturer who builds a system that is economically viable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vertical Roots uses their system out of Charleston. Uh, Amplified Ag builds a container system that actually realistically made us money last year. For mm-hmm. the first time, we had a profitable container system. Right. Um, so it took us five tries, but the fifth manufacturer we realistically can scale with. Mm-hmm. And it's not just based on projections or pro formas. It's... Um, they actually have manufactured over 300 of these for themselves. So mm-hmm. whereas we've gotten up to eight total containers now, they've built over 300 for themselves and are operating over 200 mm-hmm. of, of them currently. So they've shown that they're profitable for themselves right. uh, before they ever even sold us the first commercial system we got from yeah. them. They actually weren't even sure they were going to do that. They had gotten effective enough with it to be profitable themselves and then kind of debated whether or not they even wanted to make it commercially available for purchase because of some of the issues I faced. They didn't want people 
saying, hey, we're having problems. We yeah. need you to fix it. Or you told us this and right. we're seeing this. And so they right. said, you know, do we really want to deal with yeah. that? Um, and I basically said, well, we need it. <laughs> you know, we, yeah. <laughs> I really need what you're using. If you guys yeah. have proven that out, we need we need yeah. to build around it. So thankfully, I've got a great relationship with them. David Flynn is their CEO at Amplified yeah. Ag. And um, them, Randy Francis on the vertical root side, they've been incredibly supportive in a way none of our previous manufacturers mm-hmm. have been. So... Um, but that's why you see vertical roots growing as quickly as they are on the East Coast is those guys control their future. They can manufacture yeah. their own systems and they are um, efficient enough yeah. to grow enough produce to actually be profitable. Yeah. So. Well, that's good. Well, I'm sorry you had to be the guinea pig for so many different <laughs> I wanted to be projects, in a lot of ways. But they call yeah. it the bleeding edge and yeah. I thought I was on it, but I yeah. really thought the people I was working with could support me in a way we would be successful. Right. I had no preconceived notions about the hours to put in. Yeah. I was fine with putting, I mean, I had had plenty of jobs out of college that, you know, I was putting in 56 yeah. hours a week. I was okay with that, but I was, my mind was towards, well, one, I can go to sleep knowing that it's a really quality endeavor. Right. I'm doing something that could be good for everybody in the long term. Yeah. Um, including the environment, if we really deliver on the sustainable growing methods side mm-hmm. of it. Uh, and then on the other side of it, the potential in me building a business long-term that could make me more money for those hours spent. You know, yeah. I was willing to work for that. Yeah. But I just I never anticipated I would face the challenges just growing the produce that we yeah. did start now. Just getting the support that you needed for that. Chelsea Green Publishing is recognized as a leading publisher of books on the politics and practice of sustainable living. They publish authors who bring in-depth practical knowledge to life and give readers hands-on information related to organic farming and gardening, ecology and the environment, healthy food, sustainable economics, progressive politics, and most recently, integrative health and wellness. They are my go-to source for books on permaculture and sustainable food systems and all those points of interest we cover here on the podcast, sustainable food from soil to table. As a listener to this podcast, you can now get 35% off the entire Chelsea Green catalog. Enter POD35 at checkout. Discount applies to U.S. customers only and cannot be combined with any other sales pricing or promotions. For more information, visit ChelseaGreen.com. So talk to me a little bit about what appeals to you. About, you said you hadn't really been interested in agriculture. Is it more that it was kind of... Um, is that technology and, and incorporates the numbers and the, and the, that part of it, is that what appealed to you more to go towards the container and the hydroponic as opposed to? Not really. I mean, truth be told, like if you follow me on social media, at least for the first few years, my younger cousin, my farm manager, Colby mm-hmm. has taken it over and has started you know, trying to post more, put more content out there. But I'm just not naturally a person who, tries to tell people what I'm up to and I went to Georgia Tech so that doesn't make sense but (laughs) I've you know I spent so much time in my first few years behind the computer yeah that when I had spare time or I was it was my free time I didn't want to touch anything technologically involved and yeah barely would touch a tv in the evenings and I just really wasn't interested in looking at a screen so for, for me it was consistency yeah the problem we had seen at least when we were trying to find food for our son or ourselves was if it was like a something out of the state farmer's market, in all likelihood, you'd lost track of where it even originated. Right. And on top of that, if I wanted really good collard greens or something like that, it was going to be the fall months when it was readily available. Otherwise, yeah. I didn't know where it was coming from or it certainly wasn't fresh. Right. And you could tell the difference between fresh collards and collards that had been bagged and sat for three, four weeks. Yeah, you know? yeah. And... For me, it was consistency. The idea that you could have a consistent food source, not only for consumers, but for mm-hmm. restaurants in particular. My wife and I, after we got married, kind of got into watching Top Chef. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you have a little more money in your pocket, you can go have a nice meal every now and then. Right. And we really, we look forward to that. We don't yeah. really go out to eat ever um, unless it's, if we are, we're going to try and have a good meal. Right. Um, and there was the idea of having a consistent year-round source of food for the restaurant industry. The idea that if we produced it year-round, you'd have a really quality source versus what shipped across country. Mm-hmm. And then it was sustainably minded just because mm-hmm. you're local distribution year-round. Yeah. Um, 
there was a number of reasons and it really didn't have so much to do with technology except for the fact that I knew the technology had the ability to eliminate, so to speak, some of the, some of the risk fluctuation you see in the mm-hmm. natural state of farming. You know, if you're yeah. row cropping, you depend on the weather and that right. was the piece that if we could eliminate that, we could control the inputs that really became more of a manufacturing approach to farming. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I guess the banker number side of me really liked that idea. If you could mm-hmm. schedule it out and scale it and, you know, the, it was, it was a really, you know, I kind of joked earlier about it, but it was a controlled right. way of farming. Yeah. And I thought you could manage cost more realistically that way. Yeah. Uh, ideally you'd reduce waste in the process. And there's a lot of things about it. I thought made sense. Cause I've, I've read some stuff that Kevin Gillespie has said about, local food systems you Mm -hmm. know and how if you're going to do this farm to table approach realistically you have to have restaurants that buy into that concept you have to have a circular economy that really supports it you can't just have a handful of restaurants in a market that like to sell a higher priced plate because it's farm to table right right so I, i realistically felt like we could be a part of that and when i went to boston back in 2016 they had a map of the continental U.S. that showed all the states where their container farms had been purchased so far. And in the mm-hmm. southeast, there was only two or three. Mm-hmm. And they were in Florida and I want to say maybe North Carolina. But yeah. nobody was really paying attention down here, it seemed. And I yeah. thought, you know, for the long term, maybe I could be somebody who helped figure that out yeah. down here and could be an expert of sorts in that right. industry Leave where that. nobody else was really paying attention. Yeah. And then at the same time, I was looking into the ag census, which was at that time 2015 data. Right. But less than 6% of farmers that were uh, were under the age of 35. Mm-hmm. And so the average age of a farmer at that point was 59 years old. Yeah. And just increasing each, yeah. each census. So yeah. it concerned me, who's going to grow our food? Yeah. And really you know, not to get ahead of ourselves, but that's what I'm facing now is you've got these large commercial farms that have moved to Georgia out of Orlando, Carolina, Ohio, New York, Mm -hmm. and they're coming down here to institute these really massive hydroponic systems that aren't really intended to feed Georgia so much as be distributed elsewhere still. And so we're just still part of that big mega farm movement. And I had hoped to outpace that. I had hoped we could maybe be the homegrown version of what I'd seen in other states. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, the, the capital <laughs> that those guys brought in just outpaced me, unfortunately, yeah. but there's still a need for it. Yeah, yeah, there is. And I think too, that it's, it's, uh, like you say, being that kind of first getting it started, you know, I think that there's definitely, um, a path for that to follow, especially, um, you know, in the urban areas where you're losing, and some, and we're losing so much land. You know, I mean, we were talking before we started recording about um, the pooler area and how everything is growing up and all this construction that goes on, and you just see so much, you know, a lot of land that used to be farmland is now warehouses and Very different much. things like that. And, and when you look towards the future, too, just in terms of climate change and natural disasters i mean this this kind of farming system um and I, I think you and i have kind of talked about that a little bit before too um is something that can bring food relatively quickly into like a disaster Very area nice. and um so i think that's kind of an important thing to think of too i mean my feeling towards sustainable food is Lots of farmers growing things in lots of different ways. And so I think, you know, hydroponics plays an important part in that because it doesn't rely on climate and land like traditional, Mm -hmm. you know, farming does. So I think that's really cool. And I think, too, you know, and and you can kind of talk, too, about your, um, like, from start, from seed to harvest and that kind of thing, what's your... What's your timing on that for different, for crops? So you're growing basically, you grow collard greens, lettuce, radishes. Yeah, it really depends on the time of year right now. This is the first summer we've ever exclusively grown lettuce. Mm -hmm. Uh, Historically, we've been involved in farmer's markets to a degree where variety really was helpful with us moving our produce each week. Yeah. Uh, 
the longer we've been in existence, the more we seem to have the commercial business focus. Mm -hmm. And we've ended up being able to refine our process and cut back hours a little bit because we didn't spread ourselves around different cultivars. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but we've, we've got a recipe, so to speak, for all of those. Mm -hmm. uh, we start everything from seed. It's all certified organic, non-GMO. Mm -hmm. Most everything we order comes from either Baker Creek or Johnny Seeds, mm -hmm. um, which are two reputable quality right. heirloom seed companies. And that's been a focus of ours is to make sure we, we offered a quality option for something that typically mm -hmm. isn't available in our, our market. Um, but that's the whole goal is truthfully to to go from a seed to a harvestable plant and try to provide an environment where that plant ends up being the best the best version of itself. Right. So right. that's been a really fun part of doing this realistically is being able to break down preconceived notions about hydroponics because of, I've spoken directly with chefs who won't work with me because we're hydroponic. Mm -hmm. And they've purchased hydroponic from someone else and said, yeah, I find that the flavor is not real great or the reason I'm in the South is the soil produces the best tasting food down here. And I don't disagree with the quality of food that comes out of the ground in South Georgia. Mm -hmm. I grew up on it. I love yeah. that. I'm not naysaying traditional farmers. Yeah. yeah. But if you apply the proper amount of attention to hydroponics, you can produce superior quality vegetables across mm -hmm. the board. It's just, I think in the 90s or whenever it was, I hear the story about hot house tomatoes and they were flavorless and nobody wants hydroponic right. because of that. And we've realistically got some really high-end chefs who tell us that there's no lettuce comparable tires. Uh, yeah, I'm routinely really told that we spoil people on salads. That yeah. the, the restaurant they used to get their favorite salad at, now they can't yeah. get it there because it's just not as good. Right. And, you know, I, I started out at the Forsyth Park Farmer's Market in Savannah pitching this really high quality produce that we really had spent a lot of time on, mm. but I really didn't know for sure if it would resonate with people. And then every yeah. time when people come back and then mm. they tell you the things that you've been telling them is the benefit, but they're telling you from their side, right? you're like, okay, so I'm not off base. I'm right, you know, I'm, I'm, right. I'm right to some degree, at least yeah. people agree. Uh, and then, you know, to the point where uh, restaurants like Husk Savannah, uh, I started off with them at the end of 2018 mm -hmm. when they did their first soft service. Uh, at the time, I was working with a chef named Tyler Williams, um, who's, I believe he's moved to Atlanta now, but uh, Husk had made some changes and they switched their executive chefs and brought mm -hmm. in Chris Hathcock. And Chris thankfully kept us on board. We've been selling produce, uh, one specific variety of, of romaine specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a red one. Um, it's a gem lettuce that, to my knowledge, you can't get through a distributor, but mm -hmm. they've kept us in stock from the time they opened to now Yeah, um, and have been incredibly supportive of the fact that they knew it was as fresh as we could get to right. it. So we know there's value in it, and yeah. uh, that's part of what has kept me going with this, is yeah. whether it was lettuce or collard greens or basil or what have you, right. I felt like when the opportunity presented itself we could produce the best version of that around yeah. here and have a choice to buy. Yeah. Well, and the thing about greens, and I think a lot of people don't realize this, and, and especially when when I, I talk to people who are gardening, they're like, oh, I planted lettuce this summer. And I'm like, why would you plant lettuce in the summer? People don't get <laughs> yeah. that it's bitter. It's bitter if you plant greens when it's too warm. And I think that's one of the things that is great about your product. And because you're, you know, temperature controlled and all the other stuff, it's, it's cool enough, <laughs> mm -hmm. even in the summer in Georgia, right. to have lettuce and greens that are sweet and that don't have that bitter taste that you get from from the weather. And so I think that that's definitely a good um, use for that, you know, we, growing uh, medium because... I agree completely. Yeah. It's, uh, it really showcases itself when we do collard greens because mm -hmm. uh, historically you'll hear that Collard greens are pretty tough green. Right. Um, they're kind of sinewy. You have to cut the stems out. You have to mm -hmm. wash them multiple times to get them clean. And then in all likelihood, you're going to have to add some sugar to the pot mm -hmm. to cut the bitterness. And yeah. They really need that first frost on them before right? they're any good. <laughs> so we, we get to circumvent all that. Yeah. We harvest what we call a baby collard green yeah. that never matures and gets to the point where it would be tough. It's yeah. a much smaller collard. Yeah. But, but the it vegan all, community yeah. is taking it into their cuisine for these vegan tacos, vegan right. wraps. 
Um, I've seen people eat collard greens raw regularly, which blows my mind a little bit, but they're tender enough to do that. And then I never have been big on cooking collard greens. Uh, Historically, that's been my grandma or my aunt. Right. Because of the process. Well, now I can take home a bag of collards and dump them straight in the pot. And I don't even, I don't chop them or stem them or anything. Yeah. It's just a whole different process. Yeah, it so, is. I I really enjoy the baby collars. I like to do. Um, I do my saute them just like I would spinach. So I just saute it in the pan with a little olive oil and garlic, mm-hmm. and saute them, and they're tender and they're cooked in a short amount of time. They're they're awesome. I love them. But um, but yeah, that it does take that kind of labor intensity out of cooking collard greens because they're. They're so easy to cook. Right. And so tender and quite tasty. And we we pull it over on a lot of older folks here too because typically it's the wives that will encourage them to get greens. And mm-hmm. either a husband will swing by to pick them up and I'll say, oh, you want some collards? And they'll say, ah, it's nah. for her. You know, I don't yeah. really care for collards. Yeah. And then they'll end up coming back eventually to get more. And they'll say, oh, actually, I thought they were pretty good. I, mm-hmm. I didn't think I'd like them. But. Yeah. And we can kind of convince somebody who, who wouldn't historically eat it. Same thing with radishes. Mm-hmm. Um, our radishes because they're hydroponic you don't get that I guess what you would consider kind of a, a soil flavor mm-hmm. you know there's very earthy flavor to radishes right. root vegetables in general typically right. and it's clean it's uh, it's hard to put into words but you get that straight radish flavor with a little bite at the end but you never get that that soily right. you know, that, that yeah. type of taste and so yeah. we've won some people o- over who didn't really say they cared for radishes and come to find out I guess they're not not yeah. as bad as I thought they were. So yeah. it's been neat to see the difference. I really didn't understand what we were getting into from that perspective. Mm-hmm. I just thought we were going to have a, a more fresh, more local option. Right. I didn't understand how that would impact the quality. Right. Um, we're talking with a hummus producer out of Savannah now about supplying all the parsley and cilantro for them. Okay. Strictly because they got to taste a sample of ours compared to what they were buying. I don't yeah. even know for sure that they were looking for another option but then mm-hmm. they had a sample of ours and he called me and said listen it clearly was a superior product like, yeah you just got to tell me what what you're going to charge us for it yeah. i would like to switch he said even if i've got to go up on the price of my product right he said i think we're going to end up putting out a better product so yeah. um that's, yeah and those you know, are those are two other things that that you want to eat you're like for me i i grew up in mexico so cilantro is like something i want in most of my dishes and you know, there's certain times a year, like cilantro is another one of those cool weather plants. Mm-hmm. So there's certain times a year, like right now, it's really hard to get fresh cilantro, like in a grocery leave, store. Let me know and I'll send you home. Oh, today. well, I, I will remind you because, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm like, I would love to have a source for cilantro because I can't, you can grow, I can grow it at home, but during the, when it's hot, it, you just can't grow it. It just bolts too fast. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, there's there's certain things, and, and I think there are purists out there who like to say they like to poo-poo, and I know you've heard it, you know, the, the hydroponics, and that's not really organic because you're not using the soil. Mm-hmm. And that's all well and good, and I think we need farmers out there who are focused on regenerative farming and building the soil back and things 100% like that. 100% agree. And, mm-hmm. yeah, and I, and I know that you agree with that, too. But then there's also a place for what you're doing, and, and part of that is for restaurants and you know, as much as we would like to say, oh, eat seasonally, eat seasonally, a consumer going to a restaurant wants a salad when they want a salad. You know what right. I mean? Like, really? I thought I was going to be a collard green guy. Yeah. I thought living as close as I do to Savannah with the number yeah. of restaurants that have the touristy fare that at least in the size I was starting right. out, collard greens, you know, I'd probably be able to sell this everywhere, especially yeah. during the summer months when nobody else had them. And then... Yeah hard realization that in the summer months there's not a lot of people fixing collard green centric dishes because even though you're in yeah. the south they're not over they're around not so yeah. people weren't looking for that so yeah. i could go to you and say hey how about if you got fresh collard greens in the middle of july it was like i was trying to convince them that they should sell <laughs> fresh chili you know hot chili on the sidewalk <laughs> right. or something like why would i do that so uh, so I guess there are some things that we still think seasonally. Um, Very much so. But, and, you know, yeah. the menus follow a seasonal. But salad is definitely not one of them. No, that, one's yeah. just, that one stays year-round. Because yeah. whether you can get it locally or not. And that's another bigger reason I thought it was 
it was a smart move in this market. You know, in business school, it's see a need, meet a need. Mm-hmm. If you're going to start a business, there's got to be a need to fill right. first. Exactly. Who around here is a commercial lettuce farmer? Yeah. You know, I wasn't going to take any sort of market share from existing farmers. Right. Nobody was trying to do that. And if you were, it was in a greenhouse and it was, there was still some seasonality to it yeah, during the summer exactly. months. And so I really felt like it was something that, uh, we could dish, differentiate ourselves from other farms because we didn't do anything anybody else was doing yeah. anyways. Yeah. Um, and it just, it, it took a little longer than I thought it would for us to find our niche. It really took living at the farmer's market for a year and a half Yeah. to meet some chefs who were devoted enough to the craft right. to really truly want the local product. And then right. that was what helped us segue into commercial. But yeah, it's a, it's a community and I don't want to lose sight of that for the sake of scaling up. My mm-hmm. whole goal is always still to, to be a benefit locally mm-hmm. and it's just uh it's definitely been a challenge to try and figure out how to do that best yeah yeah so we were talking i think we were talking a little bit about that before we started recording i don't know if it's something you want to talk about that you have your um contract that you're certainly working so, on because of my first few years being more r and I guess you could say um you know, for a traditional bank to want to mm-hmm. finance something for us is a challenge right now. Yeah. Um, if there's any cash flow issues, it's usually related to us trying to figure out how to make these systems efficient. Right. And that story kind of falls on deaf ears. Um, so as of late, the encouragement has been, well, if you could get somebody to contractually commit to purchasing your produce, yeah, you'd be bankable on a different level. Right. But... Like you were alluding to, most recently, we've been entertaining signing a contract with a pasta sauce company Mm -hmm. to provide basil. And it's a Georgia company. They're Mm -hmm. here in Georgia. It would still be kept local. I wouldn't be shipping stuff states over, you know, so that that piece of the story is still real. But I would effectively have to take a step back from the local marketplace. Mm-hmm. We would still be able to provide some lettuces and greens, but it would be at a, at a really reduced amount, mm-hmm. at least for the short term. Yeah. And so I've been waffling because uh, my business plan I put together six years ago was this is the benefit mm-hmm. of having a local producer in a local market who has to only produce and distribute locally. Cause right. You know, the whole goal is to benefit those around you if I'm right. going to cut down food miles. And this would, I'd be going a touch outside of my current market area, mm-hmm. but it would drastically change our operations. Yeah. It would cut down on labor. Uh, it would give us a consistent sale of 100% of the produce out of the systems that we mm-hmm. would grow it in. Uh, and it would, to a bank, it would look really attractive on paper right. to show that I had a commitment for X number of months for X dollars yeah. per pound. Uh, and that would it would change operations for us fundamentally. So, mm-hmm. and I've been told a few times, people are like, "Well, you gotta, you know, you gotta look out for the business. You gotta look out for number one. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's in your best interest, go for it." And I get that, but retail produce could be in my best interest. Yeah. And the idea of putting thousands of plastic clamshells out on shelves at each week is something that's never set well with me. Right. And so I haven't wanted to do that, even though you could argue there's money to be made there. Yeah. That wasn't where I wanted to make my money. Yeah. And I'm coming to grips with the, the basil <laughs> concept largely because I still feel like I was saying earlier, it's a long-term play. I've yeah. got my hands in a few different things, but they're all for long, long-term potential. We'd have to yeah. scale these food businesses to be viable income producers. But if, if selling basil right now to a company who's willing to commit to it in a, in a contract keeps my business alive exactly then that gives me the chance in two three four years to still be able to try and provide the local food source that right. i want to now but just am challenged to yeah i think that's and i think that's something i i hear a lot and i see a lot in this in this world of sustainable food and kind of where people are are in business but it also have I guess, higher ideals, if you want to call it that, that they're, you know, working towards. There's there's kind of sometimes this struggle of, uh, and I mean, I've even had it with the magazine too. Like, you know, you just, there's a struggle of where do you put making money over, you know, and you've, sometimes you feel like there's a struggle there between the two. But I think, you know, I think ultimately a business is not sustainable unless it's financially sustainable. And so if you're not, able to keep those wheels turning 
you know, ultimately you can't do the good that you want to do. Right. And, and so that's, that's the line in the sand pretty much. Yeah. You know, if we continue on the path we're on, I really am not certain where we're How headed. viable, yeah. Um, we do have the new system we've identified that we believe we can scale with, but we're we're still a considerable distance from having enough of those systems established yeah. and running to where we're generating the income we need. So yeah. um, it really is, it's a, do, do we stay on this path and, and do I do I remain stubborn about yeah. my goal or do we concede in some way? Yeah. Which is still, you know, it's not really well, a concession. I, yeah. It's not like there's anything negative about what we'd be no. doing with the basil. It's just, it's not the people I wanted to serve right. necessarily. And that was... That was where I was hung up. Yeah. And I think we had that conversation before, too, about that because you were finding that you were going more towards the commercial and, and more towards uh, serving restaurants as opposed to households, people mm-hmm. buying directly. And I think early on that was kind of something you had kind of uh, struggled a little bit with, too, because I, I know that your goal is to put you know good food in people's homes and... and but you also have to a lot of times follow the market and the homes in this area aren't necessarily ready for your product. <laughs> You're right. Very much so. And, and that's, that's yeah. a sad truth. But there's and I think it's shifting. I think there are more and more people who are looking at what they eat and how they source it. But there's still, especially in this part of Georgia, there's still so many people who either don't care or don't see anything wrong with what they already have available, don't you know, don't have an issue with conventional right. farming methods and pesticides and things like that. Or you have people who just simply won't spend the extra money to avoid it. So I think it's still it's still a frustrating thing because no matter how much you want to put good food in front of people, they have to want to pay for it. <laughs> That's true. Very true. And I've been encouraged to even relocate our business to other markets because of that. You yeah. Know, I've been told you know, if you were, if you had this, this business established near New Orleans or Atlanta, yeah. like how much different would business yeah. be for you? Well, probably tremendously different. Right. But, but you I also, that. I always told my grandma that I foresaw myself coming home at some point and building a business or mm-hmm. working for a business that I thought really provided value for the people around yeah. me. Cause I don't know. I always, I thought I would raise my kids in my hometown kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, saw value in that and. Yeah. I really thought this would deliver on that. And that's really where I want to affect. That's why I moved yeah. to Metter. Because people don't understand that either. Why'd you go from Effingham to Metter? You went from 60-something thousand people to 10,000. Well, in one respect, there's I-16 right here. Right. So distribution opportunities are much greater than where I was located. Right. Right. And then two, this is, it's rural as rural gets. Mm-hmm. And if you want to draw attention to the fact that rural farms and rural uh, producers aren't actually feeding their hometowns, yeah, I want to I want to shine a light on that because there's yeah. this traditional belief that Metter is full of farmers. Well, mm-hmm. we're farming commodities that are shipped out all over the yeah. place and they don't stay here. How many yeah. people are eating cotton and soybeans? You yeah, know? I mean it's just not. Yeah, it's not represented the way I feel like it should be. Yeah, to truly inform people about where their food comes from. Yeah, and it it is a big industry in Georgia, but if you look at the number one sale product out of Georgia agriculture, it's timber. Mm-hmm. You know, and so there, I still think there needs to be a focus on who's feeding Georgians mm-hmm. and is it Georgians feeding Georgians? Yeah. Do we even have the opportunity to feed ourselves? Can we do that cost effectively? Yeah. I think it's a, it's a big part of where we're headed. The food supply chain breakdown during COVID mm-hmm. kind of raised some questions about yeah. what's going on. And then now that we're out of COVID, you still see a lot of supply issues. You can't right. get certain things and still haven't been able to since COVID, you right. know, the the curtain kind of opened on that. Yeah. Now, well, why are we still having problems all of a sudden? Yeah. Uh, you look at the mushroom industry in the state of Georgia, the reason the state of Georgia is looking at trying to figure out how to bolster the mushroom economy is the biggest mushroom producer in the state of Georgia had trouble sourcing his product that he grows his mushrooms in mm-hmm. from China. Mm-hmm. We don't produce it here. So then the question became, well, why are you dependent on China? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the biggest source of the substrate to grow our mushrooms. Right. Okay, well, why aren't we doing that in Georgia? I don't know. And then you compare Pennsylvania to Georgia. That's the best state for mushroom production. Over $260 million annually in mushroom sales. Mm-hmm. Georgia's at $5 million. Okay, mm-hmm. so there's a huge disparity there. Right. We could be growing more for ourselves, but we're bringing them in. Yeah. Uh, it's the same thing with tomatoes. Uh, yeah. 
you know, how much could we produce for ourselves if we were to really try yeah. to, and maybe explore some of the non-traditional methods, you know, yeah. do get pushback. That's not how God intended stuff to be grown or, well, you can't yeah. grow corn that way, can you? And, you know, we don't want to, right. we're not trying to, we just want to supplement the market with something right. that should be local or yeah. could be local, but it's isn't not, really. It's not like you're trying to uh, say that all ag- all food should be grown in containers and hydroponically. No, it's, it's not viable. Yeah, I, and I think, too, like, I mean, and, and we've talked about this before, too, and about feeding, you know, the local community and, and how that doesn't happen in Georgia. And and one thing that frustrates me with the the kind of stubborn sticking to row crop and conventional growing in Georgia, and, and I feel like if there was a little more leadership in, in helping develop that sort of regenerative agriculture here and organic grown here, you know, that market is growing throughout the country and so much of it is dependent on California. And you look at California and you're like, okay, it's a dried up state. <laughs> they're, they're having droughts, wildfires, you know. Um, Georgia could really step in, you know, and fill that, start to fill that role. Um, I feel like there needs to be uh, some more leadership in that. And it would be great if there were, you know, maybe the next generation stepping in and, and kind of shifting how they look at agriculture. Here. And that's my real hope around that is that it ends up being a homegrown movement. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if you compare water tables, the water table there mm-hmm. is depleted. Right. Georgia, Florida aquifer is is bountiful. Mm-hmm. But if those same corporations all of a sudden decide, right. let's plant Relocate. Well, yeah. all they've done is suck California dry. I mean, yeah. avocado farms are notorious for yeah. taking all the water and for almonds. miles around. Yeah. So how do we do that? How do we use the resources Georgia has responsibly right. to feed people? Not, right. you know, just extractive. Let's yeah. not just take from the land. Regenerative has got to be a part of there's Because that's what concerns me. You could you could filter water and you could use basic nutrient regimens like we do mm-hmm. uh, to grow lettuce and other various herbs and greens. But if you do want potatoes and corn and anything else that we currently get from a row crop farm that's right. pivot irrigated, we got to figure out better ways to do it. Yeah, and it's this routine conversation where it seems like there's the group like you and I who seem to be we're always in conversations with people who are trying to figure out how do we farm better? How yeah. do we do this more responsibly? And then I'm in these political conversations where farming's not broken. Mm-hmm. What are we trying to fix? Yeah. You know, there's, there's no real issue here. Yeah. There's a huge gap between yeah. where the ones of us working <laughs> on it are and where the people who are making decisions are. Yeah. And I, I get it. Cattle are fine. Maybe they yeah. are. You know, maybe lamb and, and poultry and eggs, maybe they're all good. Maybe. But yeah. <laughs> in general, it's not being grown by Georgians. Yeah. And I would hate to see the future of Georgia agriculture is being handled by Californians. Yeah. Or, you know, those that, are mega corporations that come in. But we're trending that way, you know. Yeah. The the ability for somebody to come in and say, Hey, we'll put a hundred twenty million dollars in this community and we'll add two hundred jobs and like those are attractive things mm-hmm. and I get that. But you're not you're gonna you're gonna be hard pressed to find people who are homegrown who can do that. And truthfully, going way back to the beginning of the conversation, the reason I never really looked at farming as viable was the people who I knew were farmers inherited operations. Mm-hmm. Their daddy was a cattle farmer, so they right. were a cattle farmer. Daddy grew hay, so then they had a hay job right. and got, we you know Grandpa grew food for us in the summers, and yeah. we put it up for the winters. And yeah. then my uncle eventually did some of that. But you're talking about small parcels, right? And five gallon buckets at church, yeah, to get rid of what extra you had yeah. you couldn't deal with. And that's who inherits a farm operation like that. The only right. ones I even know of are contracted and sell to somebody else, or they're really small scale, and there's mm-hmm. not a whole lot of in between. So I get commercial chefs now who are saying. Where do I get carrots? You know somebody's got beets. That's hard to find. Yeah. It's really hard to find somebody who's doing that these days for a business. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is, and it's hard to it's hard to get started, like you say, like especially in land farming, if you don't inherit your land, it's hard to make that investment in land and then start trying to grow things and make a business. So it's there are no 
simple answers to right. local food. <laughs> but I think that's one of the things that I love about it because there's always something new to learn and there's always something new to talk about. Savannah Hydroponics and Organics is your local resource for all your gardening needs. In addition to having all the supplies and gear that you require, their staff is knowledgeable and passionate about helping you walk away with the tools needed to confidently grow your own food and medicine. No matter if you're growing indoors or outdoors in containers or in the ground, whether you want to grow your first tomato or you've been gardening for decades, Savannah Hydroponics and Organics is here to help you grow. Visit the shop in Garden City, find them on social media, and check out their website, savannahydro.com. Hey, thanks so much for listening today. I know there's a million things you could be doing with your time, and I'm so grateful that you chose to spend some of it here with me. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to share it, leave us a comment, or shoot me an email at info at southernsoil.org and let me know what you liked about the show or what you'd like to hear more of. Hope you have a great day and check us out on social media. Be sure to give us a follow and a like.